0: I invite you to open your scriptures to Revelation chapter 21. There is a genre in writing and publishing that has increased in popularity, and it is called heaven tourism or heavenly tourism. Uh, For instance, Don Piper, not John Piper, but Don Piper, wrote a book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. It recounts Piper's supposed experience of heaven following a severe auto accident, and it has sold 6.5 million copies in 46 different languages. Another work titled Heaven is for Real is taken from an account of a child named Colton, who was four years old at the time of his purported visit to heaven. Uh, Others have recorded their own out-of-body experiences, doctors who have been former skeptics, of the afterlife who were explaining everything away medically uh, after having experienced their own out-of-the-body experience now says that everyone, without exception, will go to a place of unimaginable light and peace, even though universal reconciliation is nowhere taught in the Scripture. LifeWay Christian Resources, many of you are familiar with them, has stopped selling all quote, experiential testimonies about heaven. And the reason they made that decision is they considered a 2014 statement by the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a resolution that said the sufficiency of Scripture regarding the afterlife is enough. Perhaps more popular and one that we would remember is a book written by a boy named Alex. Uh, Alex Malarkey was almost killed in a car accident in 2004 in Ohio, And he was only six years old. Two months after being in the coma, he woke up to find himself paralyzed from the neck down. He and his father, Kevin, a Christian therapist, wrote, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, a remarkable account of miracles, angels, and life beyond this world. Amazon, still today, if you research that book, describes the book this way. In 2004, Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son, Alex, suffered a horrific car accident. The impact from the crash paralyzed Alex, and medically speaking, it was unlikely that he could survive. Quote, I think that Alex has gone to be with Jesus, a friend told the stricken dad. But two months later, Alex awoke from a coma with an incredible story to share. Of events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious, of the angels who took him through the gates of heaven itself, of the unearthly music that sounded just terrible to a six-year-old, and most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. The boy who... I just found this yesterday. The boy who came back from heaven is the New York Times best-selling true story of an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes... You'll come away with new insights on miracles, life beyond this world, and the power of a father's love. That book has sold more than a million copies. Theological drift happens when we place experience as our highest authority. Theological drift happens when we step back and we do not correct error. Perhaps they did sense something spiritual. Perhaps they did see a great light. Perhaps they did experience peace. Can I remind us what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11? Paul said, and what I am doing, I will continue to do. Now, we're dropping right down in the middle of the thought. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The Apostle Paul also warns in Galatians, he said this, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Other than God, Paul Paul chooses the two most authoritative voices that people would would be tempted to listen to, and that is an apostle and, and angels. And he says, even if they come with a different gospel... Let them be accursed. That word accursed only occurs two times in the New Testament and both in connection with somebody tampering with the gospel. Eugene Peterson rightly observes this. He says, quote, New Heaven and New Earth is usually reduced to heaven and then completely misunderstood. The frequency with which St. John's vision of heaven is bloated by make-believe into an anti-biblical fantasy is one of the wonders of the world. Thankfully, when Alex Malarkey turned 16 years old and was convicted by the Holy Spirit, on his blog, he confessed that he had lied and he and his dad made it all up. He says, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. You know, the only extended description that we have of heaven is found here in Revelation chapter 21 and chapters 22. And as we trust in God's word, this is how God speaks to us through his word. And as we trust God and his word, these glimpses should be enough for us. It doesn't mean we don't have interesting discussions. It doesn't mean we don't sort of, you know, tease that out a little bit and say, well, what if? And can you imagine if, you know, just imagine if that could be. That's different than saying I went on a heavenly tourism trip and I've come back to write a book. Okay, so there there is room for speculation. Don't make it as authoritative as God's word. Have you ever considered that perhaps the new heaven and the new earth And the the new heavenly city are of such a different kind of experience and joy and abundant life that we wouldn't even understand that if we were given a thousand volumes of black words on a white page. Perhaps that's why it's so limited. Because we're tempted to interpret this picture of heaven sensually by how we see and taste and touch and feel and smell. When heaven is going to be a totally different kind of experience. Here's what we saw last week. First, John saw something. The basic vision in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, he sees... Now, remember this. We don't reduce these all down to just heaven. He saw what? John sees something. He sees a new heaven, a new earth, and a new new holy city, Jerusalem. This does not seem to be a remodel or new addition. It seems to be something new. That does not mean that this globe that we are on cannot be purged by fire and have a totally new creation that is now the earth, the heaven, and new Jerusalem. Um, we just we aren't giving those facts. Okay, That's not in the text. Can we keep saying that with Revelation? That's just not in the text. So we don't know. Could it be? It could be. Could it not be? It could not be. Right? We don't know. What we do know is that there's a new earth, a new heaven, and a new Jerusalem. And it does say in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Second, John not only sees something, he hears something. What does he hear? A loud voice comes from the throne and confirms the vision that John just saw. And we see a picture of God's presence and His glory. And there are certain things that cannot coexist in the presence of God. God in the face of His glory. And remember, we saw this last week. What are some of those things that cannot coexist with God's presence and glory? Tears, for which I'm very thankful. Death. Death shall be no more. The lingering effects of death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Yesterday, seven of us traveled to Thornton to celebrate and rejoice in the life of Donna Sturts. Phil and Donna have been regular attenders here and have joined here with us on many occasions. She suffered with cancer and went to be with the Lord. And yesterday, again, as a reminder of seeing the grief and the mourning and the pain, I'm reminded of this incredible, beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 21 that these things, death and the effects of death, will be gone forever. That leads us to our text this morning. And something happens here that is noteworthy because there are so few occasions when it does, and it's God speaks directly. It's not just a voice from the throne. Look at chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, this is unmistakable identity, direct communication from Yahweh that is ratifying this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. He's not only ratifying the content of chapter 21, 1 to 4, but it seems like he is endorsing and ratifying the visions of the entire book because they all point to this vision, this final vision. God makes three statements. That's the entire sermon this morning. I know, it sounds short, right? Just three statements. God makes three statements. The first two statements are in verse 5, and the third spans verses 7 and 8. The first of these three is a statement of what God is doing, The second is a command to write and sort of an offer. And the third is a statement of who God is based upon who God is, what He promises to both the righteous and the righteous. let's notice the first thing that God says. He says this, I am making all things new. Look at 21 verse 5. Okay, this voice comes from the one seated on the throne and He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Listen to Isaiah 65 verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Will you remember the pain of this world? Will you remember the betrayal of this world? Will you remember the guilt and the shame? Those are two different things. Will you remember the guilt and the shame of this world? Will you be haunted by failures into eternity? The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Folks, that's good news. Why? Because it's new. Behold, he says, he's ratifying what he just said in the first four verses. Behold, I'm making all things new. Have you ever noticed that carpet is noticeably, new carpet is noticeably new? Yeah. And how really good, deep, clean carpet isn't? Like when you walk into somebody's house and there's new carpet, you're just like, there's new carpet in here, isn't there? Right? From, from a single sense, you can tell. You know, and they didn't buy the Yankee Candle new carpet smell. I mean, there's something, there's something distinguishable about new carpet. And then you feel it and you're like, that's plushy. I don't even know if that's a word. That's plushy, right? It's new. It smells new. It feels new. It looks new. But you can have our carpet totally deep cleaned. Like, really well, and underneath you've got that dog stained pet odor in the pad. That's not new. It's not like, you know, we just put a surface layer over this. It's like a, a makeover. We're going to flip this house, and oh, here it is again. It looks familiar. <laughs> and you didn't do anything in the basement, did you? So it's not that kind of new. It is totally noticeably, obviously new. All things are new. This is God's guarantee of a future recreation. is both continuity. It's a new earth. So it may be what we're sitting on, but it's going to be new. And there is discontinuity between the old and the new. The old passes away. There's still an earth, but now it's a new kind of earth. This is God's statement. In Isaiah 43, verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, desires the Lord. Now, for those of you who love the Old Testament, and I hope as we grow together over the next couple of years, we all grow to love the Old and the New Testaments together. Um, There are echoes. If you're reading through Revelation 21 and 22, and you're reading through these Isaiah passages, you're going to hear echoes of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. Why is that so important? Because God keeps his promises. God keeps all of his promises. He cannot lie, the Bible says. It's outside of his character. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that raises some questions, doesn't it? If I'm a new creation, why do I still look like this? Why do I still think down certain paths? Why do I still behave in certain ways? Well, there is an inaugurated sense in this that is not completely fulfilled yet. The Christian is now a new creation, but the Christian will be a completely new creation. Matter of fact, the believer is of such a different kind already that in John chapter 3, Jesus calls it what? New birth. It's not like, you know, it's not like this 14 year old just made some New Year's resolutions and he's new. No, it's like he's been totally born all over again as a different person. But I'm not, but you have. This is the already not yet concept as we push through redemptive history, salvation history, and we look to the end for the fulfillment of our salvation. Notice the second thing God says. Look at the second part of chapter 21, verse 5. And this this is directed to John. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now perhaps... John is hearing the direct voice of God, which happens so rarely. And he's like, he stopped writing. So you, there's this, this prompt. John, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Or if this is just for us, the readership to say, okay, God is speaking and his words are, remember we, what we just said, God keeps his, his promises. His words are trustworthy and true. The dragon's words are not trustworthy and true. The serpent in the garden, the dragon, the devil, his words are not trustworthy and true. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not abide in the truth. He is a liar and the father of it. The beast, his words are not trustworthy and true. The false prophet, his words are not trustworthy and true. But he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All these amazing promises that we are seeing are anchored in the character of God as sovereign over history. So, in this sense, I mean, when we get into Revelation 21, the end of all things as we know it have been completed. God ratifies that and He says, It is done. And that might bring forth a question. Especially as we live in the last days of the last days. How can we be sure these things will happen? Amidst all this doubt and amidst, I mean, you said you were coming quickly. This doesn't feel quickly. How can we be sure all these things will happen? How can we be certain these words are trustworthy and true? And to that, God responds with what? In the text, what does he respond with? He doesn't, he doesn't choose a couple children and a man to go on a heavenly tour. What does he say? He says, I am the what? Alpha and the Omega. Alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. In English, God would say, I am the A and the Z. That's all he's saying. In Greek, Alpha and Omega. Omega. And then he interprets it by saying, the beginning and the end. So even as Mark prayed for us this morning, he says, We come to you because you're the Omega, you're the end. And the one who knows the end of all things, because he is above time and he is eternal, knows how it's going to progress. And so he says, as if he's in that moment, it's done, it's completed. The Alpha and Omega is further interpreted in Revelation 117 and, verse two, and chapter 2, verse 8, as the first and the last. I mean, he's just repeatedly telling you, he's the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. Listen, my words are trustworthy and true. It is done. It is done. By the way, the lake of fire, it is done. Eternity with or without God, it is done. And yet here we, here we sit breathing in time to hear His gracious offer. God is the originator and completer of all things. In the last chapter, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, we will be told this again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's reminding us. He knows how this thing is going to end. Then He says this to the thirsty, and this, isn't, this seems to be an offer, or it's a promise of abundance, of abundant life in heaven. But listen to what he says. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now we know that the forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ. In the old hymn, um, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But this... Promise actually seems to be tethered to Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Turn there with me. It's just a page or on your same page. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I will give abundant life. I will give a satisfied life. Look at Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through, and this is a beautiful description. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's this stream in Revelation 22 called the river of the water of life. This imagery is drawn from Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 3. Let me just read that. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's the big idea, the satisfaction. The delight, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for david there 's the, those Davidic covenant and promises tied to d- delight and satisfaction, and here they are, all culminating here at the end in a new heaven and a new earth and a new city. I love the adverb used in revelation 21 freely without payment it emphasizes that god's gift is plentiful and overflowing can you just let's just meditate really quick on this one verse i'll read it to you and then i'll give you the reference he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the answer is what? He will. He already gave us His best. Everything else is just delight and satisfaction and joy in such a new kind of place that we can't even comprehend it right now. You know, what is so conspicuous about all the records of people going on their heavenly tourism trips is that when they come back, it sounds very much like this world. And this place is different. But you know, not everyone will have access to the water of life. Not everyone will see that, that, that river flowing down. And it seems like on both sides, the tree of life that brings forth 12 different kinds of fruits. I don't know if it's a different fruit every month. I don't even know if there are months in heaven. There is a, a concept of time that's recorded here. But this incredible, do you know, not everybody's going to see that. And so this passage ends with a challenge to overcome. Look at verses seven and eight. Revelation 21. And this is a challenge to the readers. That's us to recognize the difference between those who are faithful and those who are not to discern whether someone is a conqueror. Or whether someone is a coward. And this is the final two verses we'll consider this morning. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Okay, what heritage? Is he talking about access to the river of life? Maybe. Is he talking about that that beautiful place in paradise? Maybe. But listen to what he says. We'll have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here's the promise. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Interesting. The one who conquers. What does that that bring to memory, hopefully? That is a phrase that that is repeated in every letter to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. By the way, when, when it talks about conquering, it's not something we rolled our sleeves up and did Right We have to recall, First Corinthians 15:57, "Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, but without much comment, let me just read to you this portion of, the, of, the, of Jesus' response to all seven churches, to the church at Ephesus. "To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God." to the church at Smyrna. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Which our text addresses this morning in verse eight to the church at Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it to the church at Thyatira. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken, in, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Here's to the church at Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels to the church at Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. See, we considered that all the way back in Revelation chapter three. Now we're seeing it again at the end. And it's given to the one who conquers. Now, the idea of being a pillar, not very attractive. So there's, you know, there's figurative language. you like, I want to be a pillar in heaven. I'm sure I do By what this means. You'll have to go back to the Revelation three sermon. Okay? it doesn't mean that you're this sort of this concrete support structure, but it does communicate strength and support. And it does communicate something in the New Jerusalem to the church at Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Those are amazing statements. And yet, perhaps the greatest blessing is found in our text this morning in Revelation 21, verse 7, where God himself says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Now listen, I don't fully understand what it means to get hidden manna or a white stone with a name on it that only I'm going to know about or the morning star or to be a pillar. I may not get those images. But I know, as a son and a father, what a relationship between a father and a child looks like. And he just said, to those who conquer, I will be his God and he will be my son. When I see my children after being gone for a while, or like our recent trip to Panama City Beach, Florida to visit Josh, there is a response of warmth and excitement, love, and the joy of just being together. There's something about a parent-child relationship when when it is when it is lived rightly before God. Let me put it that way. For instance, I love you and I can look out and I can call you by name. i you know, see Lance. You know, and I just go through and I see, you know, other different names. I saw Terry and you know, over here I see Art and Cat and I love you. But then but there's a difference When I see Isaiah. And that's not a fake smile. That's just, he's my son. So I love you. And God loves you. But that's my boy. God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. And here's what's frightening if you're not part of the family, you don't get to go to paradise. That's not an incentive. There's an incentive enough that God loves you and sent his son to die for you. But of all those things, I mean, do I, I don't, you know, in my mind, I don't need a rock with a name on it. I don't need manna, I don't think. And I don't need to be a pillar in the temple. Somebody else can have that. If it's, you know, if, if it's special, they, but I want to be his son. I want to hear him say, I am your God and you are my son. Don't miss that here towards the end. But there's another side to relationship. And that is to relate to God not as a conquering son in Christ, but as one who is described by the book's most prolific sins, who is outside of Christ. All these promises culminate in a warning, and that's where we'll land this morning. Here's the warning. But as for the cowardly, This is probably those who love comfort and fear persecution more than they love and trust God. Cowards also betray others when their safety is threatened. As for the faithless, unbelief describes the basic sin that led the nations to reject God. As Grant Osborne explains, they rejected God's overtures to bring them to repentance. They made a choice. We sang that. How sweet and awesome in this place. While others made a wretched choice detestable, vile, or abominable acts of shame that are not allowed in the New Jerusalem. Murderers, that's a broad designation for all those who who take life unjustly. But specifically, Revelation is probably calling out those who have killed the saints. Where a particularly telling example is found in Revelation 11, verse 9, where they kill these two witnesses and they don't give them the honor of burying them. And they actually launch off into celebration and exchanging gifts over their dead bodies. Then he calls out the sexually immoral, which is often linked with idolatry due to the frequent practice of ritual prostitution in the Greco-Roman religion. And, And it is a contrast between the sexually unfaithful worldlings contrasted with the sexual purity of Christ's bride. Sorcerers, magic arts were a pervasive aspect of first century religion. It promised power, but it also deceived. This is how the devil and the beast and the false prophets operate. Idolatry is one of the primary themes of the book and a key aspect of the false religion introduced by the beast. Liars, the direct antithesis antithesis to God and Christ. Um, if you just look at verse five, God is trustworthy and true, but all liars will have their place. By the way, in your, we may be sitting here and thinking, I've done I've done some of these. OK, the question is, are you in Christ? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? When we sing Jesus paid it all, he means All. But if this, if this characterizes you habitually without the intervention of a father whom the Lord loves, He chastens. But if you are without chastening, Hebrews says, then you are fatherless. You're not a son. It uses the same language. Can believers sin? Yes. Can they sin for long seasons? Yes. But eventually, the Father's going to come home. He's going to lovingly correct you. Why? Because you're a son. John says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Conquerors were cowardly. I'm going to close with a, a quote and then a scripture text, and we're done. Alex Malarkey, who wrote the book with his father, he said this, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven. May you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man, I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. John, in one of his smaller letters, says this I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. Are you in the Son? Have you trusted the Son? Have you called out to the Son for saving? Praise the Lord. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to His mercy, He saves us. Let's pray.